we have officially started our season of Advent uh, one week late, but that's okay. We'll, we'll catch up here. And it's the time of year when we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in flesh. He who was himself very God of one substance with the Father, the second part of the triune Godhead, humbly born in frail human flesh so that mankind might see the face of God. And how great is our God that this story of the birth of his son would be at the heart of his plan for redemption. And it's wonderful, and I hope that we catch that this Advent season. I think like many people, this is my favorite time of year, right? Apart from a little bit of additional work like finals week and catching up for year end and all of that stuff, right? All of the additional busyness, things just tend to seem to be right this time of year, I think. Christmas lights on my street, they bring joy in the midst of the dark evenings, the house Usually, hopefully, smells like cinnamon and pine. The Christmas tree is up. My living room glows with this warm feeling in our family room. The weather in Arizona is cool and beautiful. And people in general, except for Black Friday, tend to have this cheer about them. (laughs) And I get to have this fun of building this anticipation in my children with the gifts that I get to give them in the season, right? And I understand that at the heart of this time of year, the heart of my joy is Jesus coming, no doubt. But I love, I love to mess with my children and build (laughs) this anticipation. Maybe God feels that same kind of joy, which is why he's waited so long, I don't know. But I love to get the Christmas tree up early. We actually tried to get it done the day after Thanksgiving and there were no places open yet for Christmas trees. I love to get some gifts under there so they get to see them. I love the fun of going out and shopping for my children and finding something that I think they'll enjoy playing with and imagining them doing so. And I like to build the excitement and the anticipation and I enjoy giving good gifts to my children. It brings me joy. It's fun, and I'm blessed to be able to have the means to do so, I think. But what I find interesting about the anticipation of this season is that the anticipation itself always lasts longer than the satisfaction of the gifts. Have you noticed that? Okay, that may be a confusing sentence, but I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you really think about it, if I really think about it, I try to remember, what did I get for Christmas last year? I have no idea. And I think that maybe I vaguely remember what I got my kids for Christmas last year, but only vaguely. And I'm absolutely positive that my children have no idea what they received for Christmas last year. None whatsoever. After all of the waiting and all of the anticipation and all of the expectation of gifts last Christmas, they got the gifts, they opened the gifts, they celebrated the gifts, and probably within a week... Those wonderful gifts had pretty much faded into the background of their lives, just become background noise. And they became almost meaningless within just weeks of receiving them. And here, I think, is the nature of gifts, right? No matter how wonderful they may be, they have a tendency in time to become commonplace. 
And the joy that we experience from receiving gifts, it fades in time. Our appreciation wanes, our satisfaction dwindles, the wonder dies. And what was once very special in time becomes common. In time, we don't even remember what the gift was. We hardly recall why it was special. We lose the appreciation and the joy and the marvel of what was once that object of our joy and satisfaction and anticipation. And unfortunately, if we're honest, isn't this even the case with the gift of Jesus from time to time? We're always at risk, I think, of letting this incredibly uncommon story become commonplace in our lives. We're often guilty of letting our appreciation for the greatest gift fade into the background. And time and circumstance, life and busyness causes us to forget the mystery and the majesty of this impossible yet true story of God in the flesh. And Hebrews tells us that this baby upholds the universe by the word of his power. And yet even with all of this mind-boggling authority for a time, he was completely dependent on his mother, Mary, and her husband, Joseph. And what a gift for God to give to you and to me. And what a tragedy that we often allow such a wonderful gift to be little more than just a passing thought. So my hope and my prayer is for a few moments this morning at least, you'll join me in just finding satisfaction and celebration and joy at this gift that God has given us in his son Jesus. And it may be that because our flesh is weak, it may be that tomorrow we, we fade in our wonder. But at least for these next few moments, my hope would even be for these next couple of weeks, I hope that our hearts get to be set ablaze with joy and awe at the gift that God has given us in this little Messiah, his son, Jesus. And I hope that God allows us to carry that joy forward with thankful hearts for at least the rest of the month, if not longer. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this time, for this time of waiting and watching. And Lord, it's my heart's desire, I believe it's all of our hearts desire that you would come today, that you would return, Lord Jesus, come. But we thank you that we get to look back and remember that your promise will be fulfilled because your promise was fulfilled. We thank you for this time of year when we celebrate the coming of your son, Jesus, and all of the anticipation and all of the hope was fulfilled. We thank you for bringing your glory here in flesh, and we worship you for that this morning. Amen. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn there. If for some reason you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. So come see uh, someone at the bookstore after the service, and we will hook you up with a Bible. Let it be our gift to you. I'm going to start in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Uh, Our secular society, I think, is quick to point out that the Bible does not expressly forbid sex before marriage in the New Testament. And I think even a lot of Christians today don't seem to have a problem with couples living together before they get married. It's just what people do, right? But this text shows us that in the culture and in the context within within which the Bible was written, the people of God simply did not do such things, okay? The story of the birth of Jesus is scandalous for this reason. But we lose sense of that scandal if we allow our modern culture to influence how we perceive marriage and sexual intimacy. Mary's pregnancy was so scandalous, in fact, that Joseph, upon finding his wife to be pregnant, seeks to divorce her for her infidelity quietly. And the reason he needed to do it quietly was because if he were to press this matter publicly, then she would be guilty of uh, adultery. And she could be stoned in the streets for her behavior. Now, just so we understand, Jews at this point in time, they practiced uh, a two-part marriage, okay? Two stages, which helps us kind of make sense of the story here. It helps us understand the word divorce, and it helps us see why the virgin birth is incredible to an increasingly skeptical society, okay? The parents of the groom would select a bride for their son, Once the selection had been finalized, the two families would enter into a legally binding contract that would make the bride and groom husband and wife. And this informal ceremony would take place in front of a group of witnesses, and once it was completed, the marriage was finalized. It was done. However, between this contractual arrangement and the actual consummation of the marriage sexually, generally at least one whole year would pass. And within that year, the families would plan together for a week-long wedding celebration that they would hold with family and friends. And until that time, the couple would remain celibate. So in our story, Joseph and Mary, they've already completed the first part of this process. They are legally married, but they have never had sex. So you can imagine the shame and the shock that Joseph must have felt to hear that his bride, who was already his, was pregnant. She belonged to him as wife. She had been betrothed to him. They were legally married in the eyes of God. And of course, his assumption then would be that she had been unfaithful to him. But this, we see, is a truly exceptional case, unlike any other case While being pregnant with the Son of God, Mary was yet still a virgin, chaste, abstinent, faithful in her marriage commitment. And Joseph himself, he never would have believed it if it weren't for the angel of the Lord appearing before him in glory to wipe his mind clean of any doubts whatsoever. The Holy Spirit, in an incomprehensible way, without sexual intercourse had conceived in Mary a holy child, the perfect Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, God himself. And yet, in completely natural ways, Mary then would produce a child according to the common, ordinary practice of childbirth, 
the common and the uncommon them, uniting together in the Christ child, human and divine. Okay, now any parent who's had a kid knows that good things come in small packages, right? And that saying is nowhere true or more true than it is when you're holding that teeny tiny child born to expecting waiting parents. And I tell you from experience, there's no feeling quite like the feeling of holding your tiny newborn child for the very first time. And I would say that it's truly a holy moment. But in this case, we have an exceptionally good gift in an exceptionally small package. How can it be that God in all of his fullness dwells here in this small child? Turn with me in your Bibles real quick to 1 Kings chapter 8. It's not one that we go to all that often. It's way to the left. (laughs) Page 366, if you're wondering. That's my Bible anyway. 1 Kings chapter 8. When Solomon builds the temple of God in Jerusalem at the dedication ceremony of the temple, Solomon the wise points to this strange reality of building a house for God on earth. 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 20 he says or 27 he says, "But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built for you. And God is spirit. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. If we were going to build a temple for him, it would have to be vast beyond any feat of engineering that modern science can dream up. And Solomon recognizes the boundless measure of God cannot be contained in a building. And yet strangely, Interestingly, God was not even said to dwell within the whole temple. No, you had to go inside the temple, deep inside, into a small room called the Most Holy Place, where the presence of God exclusively dwelled. But in fact, God wasn't said to even dwell in the Most Holy Place. Rather, inside of the Most Holy Place was an ark, the Ark of the Covenant, And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what the Jews referred to as the mercy seat, seat, a small space, an empty area on top of the Ark between two angels made from gold, the mercy seat. And it was here in this tiny space that the fullness of God was said to dwell amongst his people. And it doesn't even make sense, right? The vast, omnipresent God contained in this tiny space within his temple. An exceptionally good gift, the presence of God. In an exceptionally small space, an empty area roughly four feet long and two feet wide. And we can't help but ask, how was it that God, whom the highest heavens cannot contain, could be found in such a tiny space within his temple here on earth. And I find myself wondering, was God said to dwell on the mercy seat so that his people would be prepared to accept the idea that the God of the universe, infinite in size, could localize himself in such a way as to only occupy one tiny space? 
I wonder, was God said to dwell on the mercy seat, this finite space within the temple, so that his people would be prepared to accept the idea that the infinite, omnipresent God would localize himself in human flesh and be laid in a manger in the form of a newborn baby? An exceptionally good gift in an exceptionally small space. Was God preparing his people even then to receive the miracle of the incarnation? Wonder of wonders, God himself, the mercy seat of the Lord of creation, now made the Christ child, Jesus. Now turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 10. I told you we're going to be everywhere. I need you to see here that Jesus himself, he knew that he was God's gift to mankind. And it was for this purpose he came. You know, sometimes that phrase is tossed around in jest, right? God's gift to mankind. You have some athletic superstar, some globally famous actor, some world-changing politician, and people treat them like God's gift to humanity, But I dare say nobody would be vain enough to actually claim that for themselves in any amount of seriousness, except for Jesus, who was in fact God's gift to mankind. John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus is talking with this woman at the well who's lost and she's hurting. And he makes this astonishing claim. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying this to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, now without looking at the entire passage uh, to see its context, where you might find it completely clear, let me for the sake of time just tell it to you. Jesus is claiming that he is the gift of God. He is the living water. He is the Messiah of the Jews in flesh. He is the one that the people of God have been waiting for, watching for. He is truly and completely God's enduring gift to humanity. And we can be certain that this is the case if we go back to Matthew 1 now. How is Jesus this gift? In what way? Matthew chapter 1 verse 20 points out that it was an angel of the Lord who proclaimed these things to Joseph. And verses 22 through 23 tells us that what the angel of the Lord proclaimed was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy found in Isaiah 7.14. I won't make you turn there. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The God who fills the highest heavens is now with us. The God who allowed his presence to be localized in the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies, set apart and unapproachable in his glory, beyond the reach of sinful humankind, has now destroyed the barriers between God and man and become Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, now look, so important is this idea to Matthew that he does something very cool in his gospel. Jesus is not physically present with us now, right? So does that void his name, Emmanuel? He has ascended to be with the Father to sit at the right hand of 
God Almighty to intercede for all who believe. His flesh lives because he was raised from death to life, but his flesh is no longer physically here with us. So what has become of Emmanuel, God with us? And Matthew tells us, flip to the end of Matthew, chapter 28. Didn't know you were going to get exercised at church this morning. And notice something with me. Jesus leaves his followers with a mission, a mission that we as a church have taken up as our mission, helping people meet and follow Jesus. And in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, notice the very last thing that Jesus says to his his disciples. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And what is the very last thing that Jesus promises to you and to me, his disciples? He is with us always to the end of the age. Because he is Emmanuel, God with us, forever the presence of God dwells with those who follow him. And Matthew reminds us at the beginning why Jesus came as a child to be God with us. And he reminds us at the very end that even though Jesus is not physically present, he is and always will be with us. And our exceptionally good gift in its exceptionally small package is always with us. The gift whose glory never fades and whose mercies are new every morning. But there's one more detail in this story I need to point out. One final thing I want to show you in Matthew, okay? In chapter 1, who makes the announcement to the angel, or I'm sorry, to Joseph about the birth of Jesus? It is the angel of the Lord. We see the angel of the Lord, which is a unique phrase on a couple of occasions throughout Matthew, but stay in chapter 28, because the most important places are in chapter 1 and 28. So again, in chapter 28, we see the resurrection of Jesus after his crucifixion and death. Chapter 28, verse 2, it says this. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. An exceptionally good gift in an exceptionally small package. Jesus, the meek and mild Christ child, defeats the power of death with an empty tomb. Remember the shame of the pregnancy that I mentioned at the beginning. A young girl engaged in the eyes of her local community, pregnant before marriage and not even by the man that she's betrothed to. Scandalous, embarrassing, shameful is how this story starts. And yet the birth that the angel of the Lord announced While it appeared to be shameful in the eyes of man, it was in fact the glory of God. 
born not by the effort of man or, or by the will of man, but by the will of God so that he might save his people from their sins. And we see the same reality in the crucifixion. The Romans could devise no more gruesome or shameful death than to be hung on a cross. Beaten, stripped naked, publicly displayed for all to see your misery and defeat. Lifted up outside the city gates because you don't belong inside. On a busy public holiday, the Passover, when Jerusalem would have been crammed full of people. So that everyone who might pass by could mock and jeer Jesus and heap shame upon him. And yet the death that appeared shame was in fact the glory of God. The death that Jesus died, that Satan and evil intended for his shame, in fact became their shame. Go to Colossians 2. Last one, I think. Colossians chapter 2, in verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is Christ. An exceptionally good gift in an exceptionally small package. Jesus defeated death. He bore our sin. Does it get any bigger or more significant than that? He himself, who is our gift from God, hung on our cross, bore our shame, so that we might rise from the dead and be with God forever. And how great is our God for this hope that we have in his son Jesus knowing full well all of the crud that we experience as humans, knowing full well the struggle that it is to be human and to live this life, he came. And more importantly, knowing full well the pain and the suffering that he would endure, the shame and rejection, the wrath of God that would be poured out on him for your sins and mine, he chose to give his life as a gift for us. To be born in the scandal of an unwed mother so that we might be lifted from our shame and brought into the presence of Emmanuel, God with us. And Advent is the story of the greatness of our God who did all of this because of his love for us. So here's my closing thought for you. The next few weeks are going to go by so fast. You know that. Before you even realize it, it'll be 2016. The craziness of this Christmas season will be past. And you'll be charging full speed ahead into a new year. And you'll forget the gifts. You'll forget the joy. You'll forget the peace. You'll fall back into the routine of your life. And it seems, I think, that unfortunately that's just the way it works. But fortunately, God is gracious. And I think he understands But for these next few weeks at least, let us worship God for this exceptionally good gift in an exceptionally small package. Jesus, the Christ child. So if God never gave you another thing, would this be enough? This gift? 
If you didn't get that new TV this Christmas, if you didn't get that bonus check that you're holding out for, if you didn't get the good news that you've been expecting and waiting for, if you didn't even get some time off with your family to spend it with them, if you didn't get whatever it is that your hopes and your dreams are set on this Christmas season, would you be satisfied with the gift that God has given you in Jesus? who saves you from your sins, who promises to be God with you and to never leave you even to the end of the age. Or greater still, if in this Christmas season, if God were to take it all away except the gift of Christ, would you be satisfied with only him? Would this exceptionally good gift In an exceptionally small package, Jesus, the Christ child, would he be enough?